Chapter 19 of The Courage of Marjo Dune. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Courage of Marjo Dune by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter 19. They ate, facing each other, on a clean, flat stone that was like a table. There was no hesitation on the girl's part, no false pride in the concealment of her hunger. To David, it was a joy to watch her eat, and to catch the changing expressions in her eyes, and the little half-smiles that took the place of words as he helped her diligently to bacon and bannock and potatoes and coffee. The bright glow went only once out of her eyes, and that was when she looked at Tara and Barry. Tara has been eating roots all day, she said. But what will he eat? And she nodded at the dog. He had a whistler for breakfast, David assured her. Fat as butter. He wouldn't eat now anyway. He is too much interested in the bear. She had finished, with a little sigh of content, when he asked, What do you mean when you say you have trained Tara to kill? Why have you trained him? I began the day after Brokaw did that, held me there in his arms, with my head bent back. Ugh! He was terrible! with his face so close to mine. She shuddered. Afterward, I washed my face, and scrubbed it hard, but I could still feel it. I can feel it now. Her eyes were darkening again, as the sun darkens when a thundercloud passes under it. I wanted to make Tara understand what he must do after that, so I stole some of Brokaw's clothes, and carried them to the little plain on the side of the mountain. I stuffed them with grass and made a... What do you call it? In Indian it is... Isena Kusawin. A dummy, he said. She nodded. Yes, that is it. Then I would go with it a little distance from Tara, and would begin to struggle with it, and scream. The third time, when Tara saw me lying under it, kicking and screaming, he gave it a blow with his paw that ripped it clean in two. And after that, her eyes were glorious in their wild triumph. He would tear it into bits, she cried breathlessly. It would take me a whole day to mend it again, and at last I had to steal more clothes. I took hawks this time, and soon they were gone too. That is just what Tara will do to a man, when I fight and scream. And a little while ago, you were ready to jump at me and fight and scream, he reminded her, smiling across the rock table. Not after you spoke to me, she said, so quickly that the words seemed to spring straight from her heart. 
I wasn't afraid then. I was... glad. No. I wouldn't scream. Not even if you held me like Brokaw did. He felt the warm blood rising under his skin again. It was impossible to keep it down. And he was ashamed of it. Ashamed of the thought that for an instant was in his mind. The soul of the wild, little mountain creature was in her eyes. Her lips made no concealment of its thoughts or its emotions, pure as the blue skies above them, and as ungoverned by conventionality as the winds that shifted up and down the valleys. She was a new sort of being to him, a child woman, a little wonder nymph that had grown up with the flowers. And yet, not so little after all. He had noticed that the top of her shining head came considerably above his chin. Then you will not be afraid to go back to the nest with me? He asked. No, she said, with a direct and amazing confidence. But I'd rather run away with you. Then she added quickly, before he could speak. Didn't you say you came all that way, hundreds of miles, to find me? Then why must we go back? He explained to her as clearly as he could, and his reason seemed to point out to him. It was impossible, he assured her, that Broca or Hawk or any other man could harm her now that he was here to take care of her and straighten matters out. He was as frank with her as she had been with him. Her eyes widened when he told her that he did not believe Hawk was her uncle, and that he was certain. The woman whom he had met that night on the Transcontinental, and who was searching for an Odun, had some deep interest in her. He must discover, if possible, how the picture had got to her, and who she was, and he could do this only by going to the nest and learning the truth straight from Hawk. Then they would go on to the coast, which would begin easy journey. He told her that Hawk and Brokaw would not dare to cause them trouble, as they were carrying on a business of which the provincial police would make short work, if they knew of it. They held the whip hand, he and Marge. Her eyes shone with increasing faith as he talked. She had leaned a little over the narrow rock between them, so that her thick curls fell in shining clusters under his eyes. And suddenly, she reached out her arms through them, and her two hands touched his face. And you will take me away? You promise? My dear child, that is just what I came for he said, feigning to be surprised at her questions. Fifteen hundred miles just for that. Now, don't you believe all that I've told you about the picture? Yes, she nodded. She had drawn back and was looking at him so steadily and with such wondering depths in her eyes that he found himself compelled for an instant to turn his own gaze carelessly away. And you used to talk to it, she said. 
and it seemed alive? Very much alive, Marge. And you dreamed about me? He had said that, and he felt again that warm rise of blood. He felt himself in a difficult place. If she had been older, or even younger. Yes, he said truthfully. He feared one other question was quite uncomfortably near. But it didn't come. The girl rose suddenly to her feet, flung back her hair, and ran to Tara, dozing in the sun. What she was saying to the beast, with her arms about his shaggy neck, David could only guess. He found himself laughing again, quietly, of course, with his back to her, as he picked up their dinner things. He had not anticipated such an experience as this. It rather unsettled him. It was amusing, and had a decided thrill to it. Undoubtedly, Hawk and Brokaw were rough men. From what she had told him, he was convinced they were lawless men, engaged in a very wide underground trade in whiskey. But he believed that he would not find them as bad as he had pictured them at first, even though the nest was a horrible place for the girl. Her running away was the most natural thing in the world, for her. She was an amazingly spontaneous little creature, full of courage and a fierce determination to fight someone. But probably today or tomorrow, she would have been forced to turn homeward, quite exhausted with their adventure, and nibbling roots along with Tara to keep herself alive. The thought of her hunger, and of the dire necessity in which he had found her, drove the smile from his lips. He was finishing his pack when she left the bear and came to him. If we are to get over the mountain before dark, we must hurry, she said. See, it is a big mountain. She pointed to a barren break in the northward range, close up to the snow-covered peaks. And it's cold up there when night comes, she added. Can you make it? David asked. Aren't you tired? Your feet sore? We can wait here until morning. I can climb it, she cried, with an excitement which he had not seen in her before. I can climb it, and travel all night, to tell Brokaw and Hawk I don't belong to them any more, and that we're going away. Brokaw will be like a mad beast, and before we go, I'll scratch his eyes out. Good Lord, gasped David under his breath. And if Hawk squares at me, I'll scratch his out, she declared, trembling in the glorious anticipation of her vengeance. I'll, I'll scratch his out, anyway, for what he did to Nisikus. David stared at her. She was looking away from him, her eyes on the break between the mountains, and he noticed how tense her slender body had become, and how tightly 
her hands were clenched. They won't dare to touch me or swear at me when you are there, she added, with sublime faith. She turned in time to catch the look in his face. Swiftly, the excitement faded out of her own. She touched his arm, hesitatingly. Wouldn't you want me to scratch out their eyes? She asked. He shook his head. It wouldn't do, he said. We must be very careful. We mustn't let them know you ran away. We must tell them you climbed up the mountain and got lost. I never get lost, she protested. But we must tell them that just the same, he insisted. Will you? She nodded emphatically. And now, before we start, tell me why they haven't followed you. Because I came over the mountain, she replied, pointing again toward the break. It's all rock, and Tara left no marks. They wouldn't think we'd climb over the range. They've been looking for us in the other valley, if they have hunted for us at all. We were going to climb over that range, too. She turned, so that she was pointing to the south. And then? There are people over there. I've heard Hawk talk about them. Did you ever hear him speak of a man by the name of Tavish? He asked, watching her closely. Tavish? She pursed her lips into a red O, and the little lines gathered thoughtfully between her eyes. Tavish? No, I never have. He lived at one time on Firepan Creek, had smallpox, said David. That is terrible, the girl shuddered. The Indians die of it up here. Hawk says that my father and mother died of smallpox before I could remember. It is all like a dream. I can see a woman's face sometimes, and I can remember a cabin and snow and lots of dogs. Are you ready to go? He shouldered his pack, and as he arranged the straps, Marge ran to Tara. At her command, the big beast rose slowly and stood before her, swinging his head from side to side, his jaws agape. David called Barry, and the dog came to him like a shriek, and stood against his leg, snarling fiercely. Tut-tut, admonished David softly, laying a hand on Barry's head. We're all friends, boy. Look here. He walked straight over to the grizzly and tried to induce Barry to follow him. Barry came halfway and then sat himself on his haunches and refused to budge another inch, an expression so doleful in his face that it drew from the girl's lips a peal of laughter in which David found it impossible not to join. It was delightfully infectious. He was laughing more with her than at Barry. In the same breath, his merriment was cut short 
by an unexpected and most amazing discovery. Tara, after all, had his usefulness. His mistress had vaulted a shrine of him, and was nudging him with their heels, leaning forward so that with one hand she was pulling at his left ear. The bear turned slowly, his finger-along claws clicking on the stones, and when his head was in the right direction, Mark released his ear and spoke sharply, beating a tattoo with her heels at the same time. Nya, Tara, nya, she cried. After a moment's hesitation, in which the grizzly seemed to be getting his bearings, Tara struck out straight for the break between the mountains, with his burden. The girl turned and waved a beckoning hand at David. Pow, you must hurry, she called to him, laughing at the astonishment in his face. He had started to fill his pipe, but for the next few minutes he forgot that the pipe was in his hand. His eyes did not leave the huge beast, ambling along a dozen paces ahead of him, or the slip of a girl who rode him. He had caught a glimpse of Barry, and the dog's eyes seemed to be bulging. He half believed that his own mouth was open when the girl called to him. What had happened was most startlingly unexpected, and what he stared at now was a wondrous sight. Tara traveled with the rolling, slouching gait typical of the wide-quartered grizzly, and the girl was a sinuous part of him. By all odds, the most wonderful thing in the world to David at this moment. Her hair streamed down her back in a cascade of sunlit glory. She flung back her head, and he thought of a wonderful golden bronze flower. He heard her laugh and cry out to Tara, and when the grizzly climbed up, a bit of steep slide, she leaned forward and became a part of the bear's back, her curls shimmering in the thick ruff of Tara's neck. As he toiled upward in their wake, he caught a glimpse of her looking back at him from the top of the slide her eyes shining, and her lips smiling at him. She reminded him of something he had read about, Leucosia, his favorite of the three sirens. Only in this instance it was a siren of the mountains, and not of the sea, that was leading him on to an early doom, if he had to keep up with that bear. His breath came more quickly, in ten minutes he was gasping for wind, and in despair he slackened his pace as the bear and his rider disappeared over the crest of the first slope. She was waving at him then, fully two hundred yards up that infernal hill, and he was sure that she was laughing. He had almost reached the top when he saw her sitting in the shade of a rock, watching him as he toiled upward. There was a mischievous seriousness in the blue of her eyes when he reached her side. I'm sorry, Sakewawin, she said, lowering her eyes until they were hidden under the silken sheen of her long lashes. I couldn't make Tara go slowly. He is hungry, and he knows that he is going home. 
and I thought you had sore feet, he managed to say. I don't ride him going down the mountain, she explained, thrusting out her ragged little feet. I can't hang on, and I slip over his head. You must walk ahead of Tara. That will hold him back. He tried this experiment when they continued their ascent, and Tara followed so uncomfortably close that at times David could feel his warm breath against his hand. When they reached the second slope, the girl walked beside him. For a half mile, it was not a bad climb, and there was soft grass underfoot. After that came the rock and shale, and the air grew steadily colder. They had started at one o'clock, and it was five when they reached the first snow. It was six when they stood at the summit. Under them lay the valley of the firepan, a broad, sun-filled sweep of scattered timber and green plain, and the girl pointed into it, north and west. Off there is the nest, she said. We could almost see it if it weren't for that big red mountain. She was very tired, though she had ridden Tara at least two-thirds of the distance up the mountains. In her eyes was the mistiness of exhaustion, and as a chill wind swept about them, she leaned against David, and he could feel that her endurance was nearly gone. As they had come up to the snow line, he had made her put on the light woolen shirt he carried in his pack, and the big handkerchief, in which he had so long wrapped the picture, he had fastened scarf-like about her head, so she was not cold. But she looked pathetically childlike and out of place, standing here beside him at the very top of the world, with the valley so far down that the clumps of timber in it were like painted splashes. It was a half-mile down to the first bit of timber, a small round patch of it and a narrow dip, and he pointed to it encouragingly. We'll camp there and have supper. I believe it is far enough down for a fire. And if it is impossible for you to ride Tara, I'm going to carry you. You can't, Sakewawin, she sighed, letting her head touch his arm for a moment. It is more difficult to carry a load down a mountain than up. I can walk. Before he could stop her, she had begun to descend. They went down quickly, three times as quickly as they had climbed the other side, and when, half an hour later, they reached the timber in the dip, he felt as if his back were broken. The girl had persistently kept ahead of him, and with a little cry of triumph, she dropped down at the foot of the first balsam they came to. The pupils of her eyes were big and dark as she looked up at him, quivering with the strain of the last great effort, and yet she tried to smile at him. You may carry me sometime, but not down the mountain, she said, and laid her head wearily on the pillow of her arm, so that her face was concealed from him. And now, please get supper, Sakewawin, 
he spread his blanket over her before he began searching for a campsite. He noticed that Tara was already hunting for roots. Barry followed close at his master's heels. Quite near, David found a streamlet that trickled down from the snow line, and to a grassy plot in the edge of this he dragged a quantity of dry wood and built a fire. Then he made a thick couch of balsam bows, and went to his little companion. In the half hour he had been at work, she had fallen asleep. Other exhaustion was in the limpness of her slender body, as he raised her gently in his arms. The handkerchief had slipped back over her shoulder, and she was wonderfully sweet and helpless, as she lay with her head on his breast. She was still asleep when he placed her on the balsams, and it was dark when he awakened her for supper. The fire was burning brightly. Tara had stretched himself out in a huge dark bulk on the other glow of it. Barry was close to the fire. The girl sat up, rubbed her eyes, and stared at David. Sakewawin she whispered then, looking about her in a moment's bewilderment. Supper, he said, smiling. I did it all while you were napping, little lady. Are you hungry? He had spread their meal so that she did not have to move from her balsams, and he had brought a short piece of timber to place as a rest at her back cushioned by his shoulder-pack and the blanket. After all of his trouble, she did not eat much. The mistiness was still in her eyes, so after he had finished, he took away the timber and made of the balsams a deep pillow for her, that she might lie restfully, with her head well up, while he smoked. He did not want her to go to sleep. He wanted to talk, and he began by asking how she had so carelessly run away, with only a pair of moccasins on her feet, and no clothes, but the thin garments she was wearing. They were in Tara's pack, Sakewawin, she explained, her eyes glowing like sleepy pools in the fire-glow. They were lost. He began then to tell her about Father Roland. She listened growing sleepier, her lashes drooping slowly until they formed dark curves on her cheeks. He was close enough to marvel at their length, and as he watched them, quivering in her efforts to keep awake and listen to him, they seemed to him like the dark petals of two beautiful flowers closing slumbrously for the night. It was a wonderful thing to see them open suddenly and find the full glory of the sleep-filled eyes on him for an instant, and then to watch them slowly close again as she fought valiantly to conquer her irresistible drowsiness, the merest dimpling of a smile on her lips. The last time she opened them, he had her picture in his hands, and was looking at it, quite close to her, with the fire lighting it up. For a moment, he thought the sight of it 
had awakened her completely. Throw it into the fire, she said. Brokaw made me let him take it, and I hate it. I hate Brokaw. I hate the picture. Burn it. But I must keep it, he protested. Burn it. Why, it's... You won't want it after tonight. Her eyes were closing again, heavily, for the last time. Why? he asked, bending over her. Because, Sakewawin, you have me now, came her voice, in drowsy softness, and then the long lashes lay quietly against her cheeks. End of chapter 19